what we're going to do right now is we're going to pick it up in the book of Revelation. So if you guys wouldn't mind opening up in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And uh, we're going to take a look at chapter 6. Uh, if you've been with us for the past few months, you know that we started a series in the book of Revelation. Been kind of working our way through it a little bit slowly up until this particular point. Um, and from this point forward, we're going to be moving a little bit at a faster pace Probably about a chapter a week, somewhere around there, we're going to be working our way through it until we get to the end. Um, what I want to kind of say in terms, by way of a preface, is from this point forward in chapter 6 on, uh, really until about chapter 19, 20, 21, uh, there are so many views and perspectives and ideas uh, and interpretations about what these chapters cover and what they talk about. Uh, I want to touch on that in just a, a moment here uh, because I think it's significant. It's important for us to understand the reality is that we literally uh, here in 2010, we're sitting on the shoulders of 2,000 years of church history, okay? So what I want to basically say is this, is that for us uh, sitting on the shoulders of 2,000 years of church history and those shoulders underneath us have had very wide and varied perspectives about chapter 6 onward and for us to basically take the mentality that, well, we know how to do it right, our way is the correct way, um, I, I think poses some challenges and some problems which I'll try to address as we kind of move on into it. And the last thing I want to say before I pray and jump in is we're going to continue to keep the theme, Jesus. Um, the book of Revelation, I, I liken it to like the potential of driving a car that's out of alignment, Right? Probably like your car, you know, the one that you smack into the curb and now it, it always veers to the left. You know, our car is like that. I don't know why always. We even get it fixed and it just still stays like that. And you, un, unless, unless you hold the wheel center, take your hands off the wheel, it turns. It goes to a particular direction. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, the book of Revelation tends to be like that. And what ends up happening is unless there's a concerted effort to try to keep it maintaining center, uh, you can either, either go off to the left or the right and get into all sorts of marginalized issues. And what ends up happening is these marginalized issues become preeminent and Jesus becomes marginalized. We want to keep it the opposite. We want to keep um, questionable content um, at a place where we can keep looking at it, we can pray through it, we can talk about it, we can try to discern it, we can try to cross-reference other verses to try to understand it. But we want to make certain that Jesus is not marginalized, not in the side, but Jesus is central. Again, basing all of that upon chapter 1, verse 1, where it says this is the revelation of Christ. That the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus. It reveals to us what Christ is like, who Christ is, what he's done, why he's so great, why he's so glorious, why his excellencies, his beauties are going to be the things that are going to fuel our praise and our worship for eternity. That's what we want to make certain that we understand. That being said, we're going to still try our best to tackle certain aspects that may be difficult, might pose some sort of interpretive challenges to us, uh, but we want to do so in a way that uh, is humble. And we want to do so in a way that comes in a manner that recognizes um, we could be wrong. Bottom line is, is we may not have the proper perspective, but we're going to try our best to understand it. Okay, so that being said, let's pray, and let's ask God's blessing upon this morning, and we'll jump in. Jesus, we thank you that you are here. We thank you that we know 
because your word's sure that you're a sovereign God, you rule over all things, and that we have a confidence that, Jesus, you will one day return. We know that. You promised that. You stated that. And God, we have that great hope in us. That is a hope that Jesus will one day and bring full deliverance. That hope purifies us. That hope transforms us. It helps us to live in a way in which we are able to live and navigate the tension between the already and the not yet. We need wisdom. We need understanding. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that in a way that brings glory to you, salvation to the world around us, deliverance from sin and sinful activities and defilement, and joy to our hearts. So we pray for your help right now. Let your words speak to us and bring glory to your name. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to kind of just jump right in. And to be really honest with you, uh, unapologetic about this, but we got to deal with some sort of uh, theological matters first. And the reason why is because, as I already mentioned, chapter 6 on is very widely diversified in terms of interpretation. I think it's important for us to understand that because... um, you know, this is one of the reasons why, you know, sometimes people are like, you know, Christians can't agree on anything. And the reality is, is we do agree on the essentials. Non-essentials, you're right. There's a lot of ways in which we disagree. Some people disagree as to whether or not the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. Some people are all into the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Some people, you know, disagree as to whether or not the Bible should be taught expositionally, kind of like how we do it here on Sundays. Other people are like, no, 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 we should just do it topically. Uh, some people are like, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, using instruments to worship and praise God. Other people are like, no, we don't use instruments ever to worship and praise God because the Bible doesn't talk about them in the New Testament. What I'm trying to say is this, that there are essential things that we can, we actually all agree on. The Trinity, the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead, the fact that Jesus is coming again, the fact that Jesus died for our sins as our substitute or penal substitutionary atonement, big word. Uh, we agree on those things. Uh, but there's other areas that's, that are nuanced. We disagree, and it's okay. So I want to basically try to give you uh, what I'm just going to call interpretive uh, horizons by which people throughout the ages, past 2,000 years, have viewed the book of Revelation. Now, mind you, um, all of these people that have come to view these things, you'll see in the next slide, um, they believe in Christ. They believe on the essentials. Uh, they love the Bible. They love the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, they're saved, is what I'm trying to say. But they approach the Scriptures from different perspectives and different angles. And I think it's important for us to understand this, lest we get into sort of this mindset in which we know it all. Okay? And we become arrogant, and as a result of that, we become sort of exclusive. You know, the mentality of like, you know, we're right, everybody else out there is wrong. I mean, there's some things that we need to hold as firm and not compromise and argue over. We'll look at those in a second. But there's other things I think that we can give. And we have to just recognize it has been the history of the church to lovingly disagree on some of these matters. So with that, here's basically four interpretive horizons that have been throughout history. I'll go through these fast. um, And I'll wake, wake the rest of you up as soon as I'm done with this section. All right. First one is this. Historicist. This is a view that basically views the book of Revelation as sort of a, a, a roadmap of history. It chronicles uh, from uh, Titus in AD 70 when the fall of Jerusalem happened onto Nero. This particular viewpoint has this tendency to kind of view all sorts of events throughout history as being sort of unfolded in the book of Revelation. 
I'll give you an example. Um, Martin Luther, at one point in his ministry, uh, the great reformer, actually thought that the book of Revelation was not inspired by God and omitted it. Omitted it. Did not feel that it was an inspired book of God. It was very confusing to him. Uh, later on, recanted that and changed his view and adopted a perspective that the book of Revelation is actually inspired and that the beast is actually the Pope. No joke. That's totally what he taught. You read any of his sermons, you begin to realize very clearly, uh, he calls it popery. Popery is the beast. The Pope is the beast, and that's how he viewed it. So to him, the book of Revelation was a historical book that chronicled sort of this unfolding drama of God's redemption, and it was sort of a series of events throughout world history. Uh, the second way is the futurist perspective, meaning that the book of Revelation speaks of not just so much events that took place already, here we are 2,000 years later, that have already taken place, kind of in a historical tra- timeline or drama, but rather there are events that have not yet taken place. Uh, one of the reasons for this is because Jesus talks about when these things unfold, I'll come again. And we look around, um, uh, futurists will look around and realize that uh, Christ has not come back again. Um, again, this is where like, some of the nuanced views, some would say, well, Christ did come back again. He's in the church. He's in the church. This is sometimes a historicist perspective. Christ did come back. He's in the church. He's moving through the church, and the church is the body of Christ. And again, they're, they're, I, don't, I would not say that they're unorthodox views of the Bible. Um, they're just nuanced. Uh, they don't affect salvation. Um, but what I want to say is this, in terms of a futurist, they view the events of the book of Revelation as one day yet to happen, one day yet to take place. Uh, within this camp even, there are nuanced versions of the futurist perspective, okay? Um, that some things that they'll find uh, they agree on, some things they don't agree on. Um, if you're familiar with some of these terms, it might be like, um, when uh, the rapture takes place or when Jesus comes back, these views might be like, uh, if it's rapture, it's like pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation or post-tribulation or the millennium. When Jesus comes back, will Jesus come back before the thousand-year reign? That's what millennium means. Before the thousand-year reign? Um, after the thousand-year reign? Post-millennial. Or are we in the millennium? Meaning, all mill. There, there really is no mill. Millennium. That we are in sort of a series of time in which Christ is ruling and reigning now. And we are in a season, uh, 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 some sort of arbitrary period of time which Christ is ruling and reigning. Again, my point is that there's a lot of nuanced versions about this. The third way of viewing this in terms of a horizon or a lens is the idealist perspective. Uh, this sort of views the book of Revelation as sort of eternal, um, eternal principles. In other words, there's a, there's a theme all throughout the book of Revelation that kind of is this unfolding drama, this battle between basic, the ultimate forces of good and evil. Um, they're not equal. All right, that Jesus is king, he's Lord, he's over all things, powerful over all things, and then there's evil, uh, embodied by the dragon, embodied by the beast, embodied by those that follow the dragon and the beast, or the false prophet, these types of things. And the idea, in terms of the idealist perspective, is that good, Christ, God, will overcome the evil, uh, the beast, the dragon, Satan. Okay, so again... The last one is preterist. Uh, the Latin word uh, pretura basically means things that have already taken place. So this idea sort of carries a perspective of the book of Revelation, views the book of Revelation as already transpiring, already happened. They view that the book of Revelation took place in AD 70. Um, and one of the reasons why they view it this way, is this sort of leads to kind of what 
you know, scholars would call like an early dating of the book of Revelation, that it was uh, written early before 70 AD. And what they see is that the book of Revelation sort of chronicles uh, and, and follows kind of the line of Matthew chapter 24, which we'll look at in a second, and then it sort of unfolds uh, the events of AD 70. If you've ever read through like the historical account of Josephus, you begin to realize that AD 70, uh, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Destroyed. The temple was utterly destroyed and plundered. And uh, basically, Jerusalem ceased to be a city from that point forward. And as a result of that, they look at the book of Revelation as sort of being this unfolding story of events that took place in AD 70. And uh, so they see um, the Antichrist or the beast embodied by, who do you think? No, no Pope. No, no Pope living that time. Good guess. Caesar, right? Caesar or Titus, Titus, which was a general. That's how they would view it. They would view, so, so do you understand what I'm saying? That's how they would kind of put this overlay, and they would view this beastly figure embodied by the opposer of good or the city. Um, and so in their perspective, they would look at it this way. So again, what I really basically want to point out is this, is there's a lot of variety uh, kind of on the horizon as far how people view this type of stuff. Now, one of the questions that oftentimes people might ask is this, uh, well, what is Calvary Slope? What does Calvary Slow believe? And the answer I want to give is Jesus. That's what we're about. Jesus, all right? Um, here's my point. Is because I recognize there's a lot of different variations about this, what we basically want to say is there are two ways in which we can recognize. There are eternal truths that should never change, never be compromised, never be challenged, not be questioned, not be held in sort of this like, I don't know. Uh, and then there's other truths or other things that we look at in the Bible that we are trying to wrestle through and understand, and we can allow for room to disagree in those things. Um, some of you guys might know who Mark Driscoll is. I like the way he describes it. He talks about it this way. There are open hand issues, and then there are closed hand issues. In other words, the idea is this, is that there are things that we have in this open hand that we can disagree over, meaning our gifts of the Holy Spirit for today. Uh, some would say they are, some would say they aren't. The ways in which we worship. Should we worship with music? Should we not worship with music? Um, the type of church government that should be. Some people might be like, I don't think the way Calvary so does the church government is right. That's fine. You're free to agree with that and, or have a different opinion. It's totally fine. Um, but the reality is, this is one of those open hand issues. And I say that because good godly men Throughout all church history, combined 2,000 years of church history, godly men, people that I guarantee you are in heaven right now, have disagreed. They have not been able to come to any type of uniformity over how these types of events in the book of Revelation or the end times actually unfold. I would say this is an open hand issue. There are closed hand issues that we don't compromise over. For example, the Trinity. For example, you know, the, uh, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, meaning Jesus died in your place as your substitute, we believe that. The fact that Jesus rose again from the dead, the fact that Jesus was born from a virgin, we don't deny those things. We don't compromise those things. We don't question those things. Those things are solid. They're in a closed hand. We will not lose ground, give ground on any of these types of topics or issues. These other issues, we'll say, let's talk about them. Let's dialogue over them. Let's discuss them. And we can agree to have fellowship 
and, and, and unity with each other and still maintain uh, an, an attitude of love and graciousness and generosity when it comes to talking about these types of things. All right, let, me, let me throw one more reason why um, this is the conviction of this, the leadership in this church. Here's why. In putting all this stuff in light of ultimate things, okay, here's what I mean, ultimate things. One day, 100 years from now, 120 years from now, this entire room will be emptied of every human soul that's in it currently right now. We will all be gone. Some of you will be in heaven with Christ. Some of you will be in judgment. It's a horrible reality, but it's the fact. One of two places we will either be. The hope is that all of those that are in heaven, as we are there, hoping that all of us will go there, uh, once we get to heaven, we're not going to be discussing uh, rapture views. Okay? It's, it's not even going to be an issue. We're not going to be talking about, you know, were you mid-trib or, you know, pre-mill or post-mill or ah-mill. You know what I'm saying? We are not going to be talking about this type of stuff. But I tell you what, we will be worshiping over the fact that the Trinity has accepted us in fellowship. We will be worshiping and enjoying and reveling and discussing and marveling over the fact that Christ paid our sin price on the cross, substitutionary atonement. We will be marveling over those things. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? My point is, I want to live in light of ultimate things and to make certain that we don't unnecessarily bring about divide over issues that can very well divide us. And be really honest with you, I've talked with other pastors and you know, they look at me and they're like, are, are you kidding? That just welcomes division in the body of Christ. If you don't have everybody believing the exact same thing about you when it comes to the end times. And to be really honest with you, my point is this. I welcome dialogue. I welcome discussion. I think that's the way we should be on open-handed issues. Closed-handed issues, no dialogue. No discussion. It's, 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 it, it is what it is. It's, it's plain and simple. It's black and white. A lot of other issues, but here's my, here's my point. There's a lot of issues in the early church, or in the church today, I should say, that there's a lot of confusion. You know, what are essentials? What are non-essentials? It's been my contention that a lot of the things that the churches today divide over are non-essentials. That's one of the reasons why a lot of Christians get all jaded, or, you know, people kind of come into the church, they get all jaded, they walk away, they're like, none of these guys can agree on everything, on anything at all. And probably one, if you look at the things that they're fighting over, don't even really have anything to do with essential issues that we will be using as fuel for worship throughout all eternity anyhow. They're over silly doctrines that either have been just brought up recently or we're still trying to navigate through them and understand them. And there's division over those things. And here's my point. is for us as a church, I want to be able to say for us as, that we agree on essential things. We're not going to budge on these things. But on non-essential things, we can talk. We can work through them. We can navigate through them. We can try to understand them. We can be prayerful. We can be humble. Last thing I want to say, and I already said this last thing already, but I got another last one. Um, the apostles. The apostles did not, they, they had Jesus, okay? They still misunderstood prophecy. You know that? They still misunderstood prophecy. They, based upon the Old Testament scriptures and their best of understanding of it, thought that the Messiah was not going to die, but that he was going to reign. They did not understand 
from the scriptures, and the scriptures were, you know, we can look at it from, you know, 2,000 years of history later and say, wow, it's right there. The Messiah must die. But they didn't see it, and they lived in the moment where Jesus was at, and they still misinterpreted prophecy. So my point is this. It's very important for us as we study prophecy, as we study the events that take place in the book of Revelation, to make certain that we maintain a mentality and attitude of humility, that we don't become arrogant, that we don't act like we have all the answers. To be really honest with you, I was that guy when I was back like 16, 17 years old. I remember reading a book and I had all the answers down. You talk with me, I would fight with you, I would argue with you. So I, I can identify those people. They're usually young, they're usually men, and they're usually guys that read a book. <laughs> right? Notice I didn't say books. They read a book. They read one book, and now they, they are an absolute pro on the subject. They're ready to fight. They're ready to just get taken to the octagon. And what I'm trying to say is I think it's really important for us to just have an attitude that's like Christ. And that we fight for the essential things, but the non-essential things, we lovingly can talk through and work through them and negotiate and try to understand them and work towards a common goal of trying to understand the scriptures. Okay, am I saying don't, don't form a conviction? Quite the opposite. I'm saying definitely have a conviction. Definitely be a diligent student of the Bible. Definitely study. Definitely read. Download messages. Do whatever you got to do. Listen and grow and challenge yourself. Stretch yourself. Become a good student of the Bible. But especially when it comes to this type of stuff that are non-essential type matters, um, maintain a, a very good, clear attitude of love and generosity and graciousness and humility, which oftentimes does not characterize people who study this type of stuff. That's it. All right, I'm not done. I'm just barely getting warmed up here. So with that, I want to jump in to the text. Um, Matthew chapter 24, I want you guys to uh, at least pay special note to. You can uh, go there in your Bible if you want. I'm going to make a few comments about this, and then we'll move on. Matthew chapter 24 is one of those passages that I think most Bible scholars would agree parallel uh, Revelation chapter 6. Most scholars agree. Not all in just one camp either. A lot of them would recognize that Revelation chapter 6 very closely resembles Matthew chapter 24. Um, what I'm going to do, I'm not going to actually read through all of Matthew 24. I'd encourage you on your own time to read through Matthew 24, Matthew 25, and kind of take a look at some of the parallels to maybe help you to kind of get kickstarted on that. Here's some similarities that I marked out. Um, you can make some note of these. I'm not going to go through all of them, but a couple examples. For example, um, uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, talks about the second seal and talks about war. Um, Reve- uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 through 7, talks about war and rumors of war. Um, later on, in the sixth seal in the book of Revelation, uh, verse 12 and 14 in chapter 6, uh, closely resembles Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, where Jesus talks about very similar cataclysmic type events uh, that would take place, like the moon turning into blood. He actually uses that same statement that also appears in Revelation chapter 6. So there's a lot of similarities going on here. So most scholars, a lot of scholars would agree that they're probably talking about the same type of event or thing that's happening within the text. So that being said, um, it gives us a little bit more help to understand this as well as sort of continuity within the New Testament that shows us that Jesus uh, talked about this type of stuff with his disciples, and it would seem as if Jesus is sort of piggybacking on the subject 
of Matthew 24 as he goes on into Revelation chapter 6. So with that being said, let's jump in. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened the seven seals. Now remember, Jesus is the Lamb. We saw two weeks ago that he's not only the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's also the Lamb of God. Not only is he kingly and powerful and ferocious and mighty as a lion, but he's also gentle and humble and uh, you know, willing to allow himself to be bruised and wounded for our transgressions like a lamb. And it's the lamb that ends up taking the scroll and opening the seal. Now remember, this was a, se- a scroll that had seven seals on it. And uh, so Jesus is going to now loosen these seals and each seal sort of uh, successively reveals uh, another uh, little bit of a story. Now, envision sort of in your mind or picture in your mind the scroll that's kind of being undone. So as you take the scroll apart a little bit, you'll find that as you're kind of reading, there's a, a new little story, a new little item that's kind of popping up. That seems to be what's happening in this particular situation. So we see the very first thing that is a part of the first seal is he says, And I heard four living creatures say with a loud voice, like thunder, come. Uh, by the way, uh, the first four scrolls um, almost read identical like that. Uh, each one of the four living creatures that we saw around the throne are given this honor of taking John and saying, come, I'm going to show you what's going to happen. So each one of these guys uh, take John, it's kind of like, uh, what is it, Christmas carol. You know, it's like the ghost of Christmas past. And, you know, it's like each one of them has this opportunity to kind of reveal to John, in this case, something new that's about to happen, that's something that's going to take place. So the verse 1 and verse 2, it says this, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, a lot of scholars have widely disagreed and debated over who uh, the person is on this horse. Um, I mean, answers range all the way from Jesus Christ uh, to the church to Antichrist. So just give you a little bit of a perspective on this. Uh, let, me, let me say this again. Uh, identity of this first rider who's on this white horse ranged from Jesus Christ to Antichrist. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is a pretty big gap. Uh, Jesus has a white hat. Antichrist has a black hat, if, if you didn't know that. Do you understand? My point is that, um, I'll give you a fast example why some would even assume that maybe this is either Jesus Christ. Some would even say in between. It's maybe the church. Because of the word conquer. The word conquer is the Greek word Nike. Just like your shoes. Nike. It can be translated overcome. It can be translated uh, conquer. It can be translated victory. Uh, when you think about the idea of, of conquer, we immediately think of somebody with a sword in his hand and slicing off somebody's head, conquering. Right? Like in the movie 300. Conquering. Right? Warriors just conquering. Um, and that's not necessarily the idea behind the word. Conquering can mean just being a victor, having authority, having power, um, holding on for dear life all the way to the very end. Because that's the very word that's also used of the church. He says, those who overcome will be given the reward of eternal life. Uh, the church is not necessarily viewed as fighting and being victorious by killing people and so on and so forth but yet they're holding on to the very end. They Nike, they conquer, just like this guy conquers. So, um, so again, the identity. Some people point out that he has a bow and arrow, or a bow, but no arrow. And because of the word conquer can be used in sort of a 
strong term, but more so even in kind of a gentle term. The idea oftentimes is assumed that whoever this person is goes forth, conquers in a bloodless type of a way. So this is one of the reasons why some scholars actually view this as like an antichrist or antichrist figure or some sort of a war, war, uh, ruler who's got all sorts of authority and power, and he gains power, not by bloodshed, but by conquering, victory, earning people's trust and attention, and so on and so forth. Uh, verse 3, And they opened the second seal, and I heard the second living creature say, Come, another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that men should slay one another and be given uh, a great sword. So this next one seems to point out that uh, basically you have people taking the peace. It seems as if there's some sort of a war type mentality or warlord type of uh, arrangement where uh, people are not living in freedom. Now again, uh, it's kind of important for us to understand we live in America. We live under perceived freedom. <laughs> and we, we live under this sense that, that everything is calm um, and that there's actually some semblance of order and peace, Right? Um, and it's because we live under a sense where nobody wants to go out and challenge our, our police forces or our, you know, our army because you die. I mean, it, it, there's, so there is a sense of just perceived peace. But the reality is uh, there's a lot of places in the world that don't have that. You live in an environment where it's basically governed by warlords. Might makes right. Whoever has the strongest muscles, biggest guns, sharpest swords wins. Does that make sense? And that's the way that it is in most places in the world, outside of America. That's the way, in fact, it's a perpetual way in which you're fighting against right now in Haiti. Because after this whole thing has happened, the earthquake, there's all sorts of pandemonium. People are trying to figure out and make sense of their life. And what ends up happening is you get these thugs. Gosh, one of the worst reports I read was that one of the jails broke open. And 3,000 thugs got loosed out into the... I mean, I'm thinking, this is horrible to add you know, more pain to the reality. I mean, you got thugs going around stealing things, people that were murderers and horrible people that were locked up. Now they're like literally free and nobody knows how to control them. You have an environment where there's just pandemonium. That seems to be what the second seal represents. The third seal is when he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, come, and I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard and it seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil or the wine. Oftentimes people picture this as famine or massive um, hiking up of prices. And that mentality uh, that sort of often happens in wartime. Um, you know, we can read this and we're like, what does that mean? You know, quart of you know, barley, you know, for two quarts of barley, whatever, for denarius. Um, three quarts of barley, I should say. Barley, first century, was horse food. Yeah, I mean, some of you are like, I, I ate barley for breakfast this morning from New Frontiers. You, you just ate horse food, right? And you probably paid the same amount for it there as what they're paying for back then, too. It was expensive. A denarius was a day's wage. And so here's the idea. You, you spend a whole day's wage on horse food. I mean, whatever's going on here, Jesus is basically saying, Inflation is just radical. People, people can't even afford to buy horse food for a day's wage. The next seal is we see in verse 7. And he opened the fourth seal, and I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider named Death, Hades, followed him. And there were given authority over the fourth of the earth 
to kill with the sword and with the famine and pestilence, wild beasts of the earth. So what we see basically going on here is uh, death. Uh, it's depicted by the color of the horse, which is uh, the actual Greek word is a chloros, the word uh, chlorine from. It's kind of like this green, palish, nasty color of dead skin. And uh, it's, it's depicting a lot of death that happens as a result of pestilence. That's one of the biggest issues right now in Haiti is people are literally dying because of disease. Um, gangrene. They get a, a wound that is not able to be healed or they're not able to uh, amputate a limb. And as a result of that, that crushed hand, uh, because it's not cut off, is not getting any type of blood supply, it just they, it dies. And... Uh, disease ends up happening and becoming rampant. It seems as if this is something that ends up happening at some place in the future, at some point in the future, this massive type of uh, disease and death and decay, pestilence. Uh, the ninth, uh, ninth verse says this, and then he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar of uh, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood and those, on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe, to, to, and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So this group of people that we see here that Jesus talks about in this next seal is whoever this group of people is, they die. They're, they immediately after they die, they end up going to heaven, um, depicted as being underneath the altar, which is kind of the place where the sacrificial blood came. I think probably it's sort of a beautiful picture of saying the only right, the only reason why they have to even be in the paradise of God is because of the blood that come down, the blood that came from Jesus. It was this connection, this link. Their only right to be able to be in this place of eternal comfort in the presence of God only has to do with the fact that Jesus shed his blood. That's it. That's it. And here they are, uh, and yet they're being comforted. They're asking questions. They're praying. They're like, you know, Lord, when are you going to help us out? Because there are a lot of people that were mean to us. When are you going to take out vengeance upon them? And basically, Jesus is like, look, I'll take out vengeance upon them as soon as the rest of the people end up being killed who are to be killed. End up here, come in here, and then I'll go down, strap on my boots. We'll take care of business. That's basically what he's saying. Verse 12. And when he opened the sixth seal, I look, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun and the black became as black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky filled to the earth, and the fig tree, as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit, is shaken by a gale. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I want to say something real fast here. Um, at the very beginning, we talked about how the book of Revelation is written in a literary genre that's completely unique to the New Testament. There are no other New Testament books like it. All scholars would agree. All. It's written in a genre that's called apocalyptic. Um, it, it, it became a popular style of literary genre uh, during the period of the first century, lasting up till about the third century. Uh, very common. In fact, some of the uh, apocryphal books that we don't count in the canon of Scripture uh, were written in sort of this apocalyptic type way. The closest Old Testament book that we have to it is somewhere along the genre of little moments like within Daniel, uh, this apocalyptic genre. I mentioned this before. It's kind of like a comic book. It's kind of how it's written, like X-Man, right? Some of you guys are like all into X-Man or whatever. You're weird. And <laughs> comic books, you don't read as a literal type of a book. You don't read it and be like, whoa, that guy's got fingers that are actually blades. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, that's not real. 
And Spider-Man, by the way, doesn't actually really emit web. It's just a story. It's not real. And the point is, is in this type of genre, um, truth and reality converge upon sort of this literary genre of uh, hyperbole and cartoon-like imagery. Does this make sense? And so this is why when you'll read things like this, and a third of the stars hit the ground. Does that mean, like, serious? Not the, I'm serious, but the serious star, like, crashed on the earth. No. I mean, one star, if one star hit the earth, everything's over. It's done. I mean, you, you can just close the book. It's like, the end. It's over. So what does it mean? Did, did actual stars hit the planets, hit the planet earth? Probably not. It's, again, a literary type of genre to describe this apocalyptic mentality that something really profound, great, strong, powerful, mighty, that gets everybody's attention, came and brought great disruption to the earth as we know it. And so he describes it as stars. Could have been meteor shower, we don't know. And again, I just want to basically say this. This is a perfect opportunity to say, um, what you won't get is, is I'm not going to be going out all speculating, all right? I, I, I've, I've read, I mean, I have, I have stacks. I have stacks of books this high at home. My, and I've read them. I've read them, and I'm reading through them. My wife is always constantly going out behind me. What should I do with a stack of books? I don't know, sweetheart. Just leave them there. And, <laughs> and, and what I want to say is this, is that some of these books, some authors like to talk about, and they like to speculate, and they're like, you know, the stars coming down to the planet represents this, or when it says that the guy was rolled up like a scroll, you know, maybe that was like a nuclear explosion, you know, because that's exactly what a nuclear explosion looks like. Here's what I want to basically say. We don't know that. We don't know that. And to be really honest with you, for us to speculate and kind of make that into some sort of theological doctrine that we know what the end time is going to look like, we know it's all about nuclear explosions, we know that the locusts that take place later on in the book of Revelation happen to be, you know, because it describes them having the face of a man and their hair's like this, and maybe that's an Apache helicopter. Sure. Maybe, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it could be, I'm not trying to say it's not. But what I am trying to say is I think to try to speculate and try to make all sorts of, uh, you know, realities by taking the culture we live and overlay our culture over this book and try to read headlines in the newspapers into the book of Revelation, I think personally can be quite dangerous, misleading. And the, and the, the main tragedy is Jesus gets marginalized. Because, because everybody gets all freaked out, like, oh my gosh, you know, Russia's stockpiling nuclear warheads, and, you know, it could be over at any moment, and everybody freaks out. It's like, the book of Revelation is about Jesus, not Russia and nuclear warheads. It's about Jesus, okay? So, I'm not going to be speculating on this type of stuff, but I will basically point out, this is a type of literary genre that's very colorful, has all sorts of images, and I think, if anything, it's meant to... Uh, accentuate or to use this kind of hyperbole to emphasize uh, how gravely serious these events will at one point take place. All right, as we wrap up this chapter, I want to finish up here. Verse 14, it says, And the sky will vanish like a scroll is being rolled up. Every mountain, island will be removed from its place. Uh, Obviously speaks of some sort of crazy types of earthquakes. Verse 15, so in the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone's slaves and frees, they hid themselves. Um, this, by the way, is sort of a picture of everybody on the planet. 
Um, rich, poor, is speaking in a way of basically saying it's all inclusive. Um, if you're rich, if you're poor, and everybody in between. That means everybody, all right? If you are a king or you're a peasant, that's pretty much basically saying everybody on the planet is going to be impacted and affected by these events that are happening. And it says in verse 16, they will call upon the mountains and the rocks, saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated upon the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who could stand? I think this is probably a reference to an Old Testament passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 34, verse 34. I'll read it to you. It says this, all the hosts of heaven shall not move away, and the skies will roll up like a scroll, and the host shall fall as leaves fall from a vine and leaves falling from a fig tree. I think it's, again, John's using some of these uh, Old Testament uh, verses to bring into the New Testament uh, in terms of this unfolding drama that's happening in Revelation. Um, If you haven't figured out already, I do think that this is probably an event that will end up happening in the future. So you can peg me somewhere in the futurist type of mentality. However, I also do see this type of stuff unfolding in history, meaning everything that we just read has basically been this description of humanity as we know it today. Isn't it? Pestilence, earthquakes, devastation, despotism, people taking advantage of the, of the oppressed, the poor, marginalized, the hurting, the widow, the orphan, pedophilers taking advantage of little kids, evil, evil, evil going on in this world. Natural disasters, we just saw one of the worst ones maybe you will ever see in your entire life. Horrible types of things like this. It's absolutely shocking to me to realize that in one day, 200,000 people can just stop living, be gone. In one small, tiny island. Shocking. It seems as if the events that Jesus is unfolding and describing here would be on more of a global, broad scale type of a basis. And it has to do with the fact that Jesus is going to make right that which is wrong. And I want to finish with this. Again, We are always trying to keep this fix on Christ. And I want to finish with three things that I think really are essential to help us to understand Christ in the middle of all this. The last thing is this. um, Next slide. Is one of the things I want us to understand is that Jesus is in control of all of these elements. He's holding the scroll in his hand. He's the one unfolding the scroll. He's the one undoing the seals. To me, this is a very graphic picture that Jesus is in control. That he has all authority, all power has been given to him. This is important because I think it's easy to try to get lost in this world. We lose perspective of who really holds all things in his hands. We see cataclysmic events even unfolding in our, in our life. We see horrible despotism, people taking advantage of other people, and we wonder, where's God? And the reality is, is that God is in control. God really, truly is in control of all things. Now, we might not always understand why he doesn't move as fast as we would assume or think that he should, but he is in control of all things, and he is on the move. One of my favorite lines in the Chronicles of Narnia is, Aslan is on the move. I love that, because it's this picture that I think, C.S. Lewis was trying to convey that God is on the move. And the way it started was Jesus came the first time, paid for this area for us to be redeemed and saved, and yet he will come back again, and he will begin to work and bring all things back to right. He is in control. The second thing I want you guys to notice, you know, take a look at that verse, Daniel chapter 434. This guy was a pagan king, 
I just want to read this to you real fast. It says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High God, and I, God, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? I love that. Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, comes to his senses and begins to realize, you know who's really in control? He's all, it ain't me. It's the almighty God. I hope you know that. The next thing I want you to notice is this, I think becomes clear in this chapter. Second one. Is that Jesus really is the ultimate and final destination for all those who die in him. All of his children. That becomes very clear because when they die, they're murdered, they're killed. They follow Jesus. Jesus, remember, chapter 5, he's the lamb that's slain. Chapter 6, his people are slain. Love this. Because Jesus, who was slain, resurrected again, ends up back in the presence of the Father. So does Jesus' people who love him. They're slain, they end up in the presence of the Father. Jesus gives them white robes, which signify purity, and uh, he removes their defilement. And then he also ultimately gives them this hope and this promise and says, you guys will be with me forever. I hope you know this today. I hope that you understand that everything in this world is moving towards something. It's not just sort of randomness, chance, happenstance. Everything is in the hand of God. God has his finger is on the pulse of all things. He is in control of all things. God is moving in a way where he's bringing about redemption, restoration of all things by bringing forth his kingdom his kingdom one of the biggest misconceptions that christians have today is they're like we're building god's kingdom no we're not we are not building god's kingdom that's bad theology and it leads to bad practices we in turn are actually being given a kingdom that's the way the bible teaches it god bestows a kingdom upon us actually bestows it to his son. His son then bestows it to us. How do you become a part of that kingdom? You love the king. You love the king. You recognize that the king is a good king. You stop fighting against him. You stop living in a treasonous type of a mentality. You stop trying to think mutiny is going to be your game. You trust the king. You love the king. Our sins have separated us from the king, but our king is so good. Our king has sent his son, his only son, to bring about restoration, to save us. That his son, who is depicted as the lion of the tribe of Judah, mighty and powerful and strong and ferocious and unsafe, like C.S. Lewis says. But he's good. He's a lamb that has become a human being entering into our world to rescue treasonous, oppressive, angry, spiteful, evildoers against the king. To not only cancel out our offense, but to bring us into his presence. It's amazing. The last thing is this. I finish up. I'm going to have the worship team come on up and we'll wrap it up. But Jesus will ultimately exercise justice. Jesus is in the process in these chapters of bringing about justice. Do you know that God loves justice? You know that? The only reason why you and I have any semblance of justice, you know when we read news articles and we're like, that's wrong. It shouldn't be happening. 
The only reason why you say that is because you're an image bearer of Christ. The only reason why you have any conscious of understanding right and wrong, justice, is because you're an image bearer of God. God is the ultimate source of justice. God will make things right. We live right now in a tension between two worlds. We live in this sense where already Christ has begun the initial steps of bringing about restoration. But we also live in this other tension of not yet. Somewhere out there. One day, God will make things right. We live in this tension. The way that Christians ought to navigate this tension is not to be all like, you know, I just can't wait to get out of this world and check out. Rapture, it'll happen. It'll save me from everything that I dislike in this world, especially my spouse. Not me, I love my wife. My job, my mortgage. It's just foolish thinking, guys. Foolish thinking. It's not the way that God wants us to live. Nor does he want us to have this mentality where we just capitulate to this world and just like, this world's all that I have. We live in a tension. Christians navigate this tension well. We live between a tension of already and not yet. We live in a way in which we love the people in this world. We make culture in this world. We do good at our jobs in this world. We make good families in this world. If you're a husband, you become a good husband in this world. If you are an artist, you make good art in this world. You do it because you are an image bearer of God and you are creative because God is creative and we do all these things because God is good. But we also live in such a mentality where we realize that one day God will make all things right and there are people in this world that are not yet right with the king and we want to see them made right with the king. That's the way we navigate this tension. We're going to respond to God right now. We're going to sing to him. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings to him. If you're one of our guests, please feel free to not give anything if you don't want to. But if you love Jesus, if you love this church, you want to be able to give generously, it's between you and God. Uh, We will also partake of communion. We have communion back there, there, and over there. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you, don't partake of communion. It's something that we do to remember what Christ has already done for us. So if Christ, if you don't trust Christ, if you have not loved Christ, Um, The way that you make that right is you repent of your sin. So we will also sing, we'll give, we'll partake of communion, we'll remember Christ. Some of us will repent. We'll return away from our sin. We'll trust God to set us free from our bondage, from sin. Jesus is our deliverer, and we'll worship him. We'll sing loudly. So let's sing, let's respond, let's give, let's love, let's worship, let's repent, let's partake and remember, because God is a good God. His revelation's gone forth. Now time to respond. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We love you. We worship you. And now, God, we respond out of love and thanksgiving to you.